Alright, so I made it, made it through the first week. Almost, well wait two hours, then we've made it through at least the first week of this class. A uh, couple things coming up due. Uh, next week we have two assignments due. The extra credit assignment is due on Monday if you're doing that. That's subscribing to the podcast, sending me an email, and then I will send you back a small photo file that you attach to the Dropbox. Just kind of getting practice doing a couple of those things. Make sure we're all set if you want to be able to submit things online for later. And then the end of the week, your first solar observation is due. Again, that's just one observation of the sun around 1.15 p.m. Uh, any day of the week is fine. Uh, all I need is the date, the time, the, what the sky was like, partly cloudy, sunny, you know, buried. If it was pouring down rain, obviously, try another day because you're not going to get a shadow from the sun. Uh, and then how tall your object was and the shadow. Need to do no calculations, I'll take care of all of that and I'll get that information back to you uh, when we come back on Wednesday after that, after the holiday break. And then quiz one is uh, scheduled for that weekend. That'll be on chapters one and two and that will be online on D2L. The practice quiz is still up there if you want to go do a practice quiz just to get the hang of taking a, taking a quiz online if you're not familiar with that. And then homework one that I gave out the first day is due on the third when we come back from, when we come back from the short break. Any questions on anything here? All right, we're ready. All right, we got a picture of the day for today. Uh, this is actually Comet Jacques. Comet Jacques here. Uh, it's the green object at the center is the comet. Um, actually visible in the northern hemisphere if you've got a small telescope or a pair of binoculars. It's actually nicely visible right now. It's about as bright as it's going to get. You will not see it with the naked eye no matter where you are. It's well below that brightness. You need a telescope, small telescope or a pair of binoculars to be able to see it and it's up in the northern, uh, northern, sky, northern sky right now. In fact, it's so far north that it never sets. It's not actually going to set until September sometime. It'll be up 24 hours a day. Obviously, you're still not going to see it during the daytime, but it actually is never going below the horizon because it's actually so far north right now. Uh, it looks green because of the chemicals in it that are emitting light. Uh, that's the material from the cometary nucleus. The nucleus is like a giant snowball. Giant snowball, not like one you'd make to make a big snowman, but something the size of a city, you know, miles across, that's at the center there. Uh, that, were, that is being, uh, that is being um, evaporated. The material is evaporating out into space and forms this great uh, head around the comet that is all of that little bits of material that have been evaporated off of this. Now what you can sort of see, and I'm going to turn off the other light for just a minute here. I think you can sort of see the tail there too. You actually see the tail of the comet off to the right hand side. You might be able to see a little faint stretch back here, which is actually the tail of the comet, which is material being pushed back by the sun. So that material is emitted. It comes as this big halo around the comet. Comet doesn't have a lot of gravity to hold on to that material, so it gets pushed away by just the pressure of the radiation of the sun, and it'll form a tail. This one isn't a great big tail, amazing tail like we see with some of the some of the comets, but there is definitely a faint tail there, not, nonetheless. There's definitely a faint a faint tail there. Now, the other objects there, there's actually several objects in this image, are actually well behind behind the comet. The comet is here in our solar system. You also have a couple of nebulae here. 
This is, these are clouds of gas out in space. And again, we mentioned before that we, we lose that three-dimensional aspect to the universe when we look out at the sky because everything looks like it's in that nice flat plane. But this is here in our solar system. And these, and I'm trying to remember the exact number. I should have double-checked it first. Did they give me one? No, I'd have to check. But they're at least hundreds to thousands of light years away. So these are very close. These are much, much further away, way out into our galaxy. And those are great clouds of gas and dust out in space. As we looked at earlier, some of those are actually for, from forming stars. Some of these are actually left over from when stars have formed and are still being illuminated by those stars that, that form there. This is actually the heart and soul nebula. You get kind of maybe a heart shape on the one if you twist your head in odd ways. If you can twist your head around down enough, you might get a little bit of a heart shape on that one. And then the other one is the soul nebula. So. A comet there, it's actually going to be getting fainter and fainter, so it's not getting any brighter where we're going to be able to get a nice view of a comet as we had hopes last year with Comet Ison, which ended up being uh, essentially eaten by the sun. So not going to get any brighter than this. It's actually about as bright as it's going to get and will start fading out and getting even harder to see. So questions? I'll give you one more light back on here. There is one more site you get to see, you can see tomorrow. If you're an early riser on a Saturday and don't want to sleep in, I'm going to switch over here to um, Starry Night, which we're going to be using for the lab today in the second hour of class. But actually, this is now set. This is the computer program that generates anything. You can look at what the sky was like, any date, time, any location on Earth, off Earth. You can do it from observing from the moon. You can do it, what would it look like if you were on Mars. You can do all sorts of different things from out in space. But here, I did nothing quite so complicated. We're in Harrisburg at 6.15 in the morning tomorrow. And if you look out to the east and you have a clear view of the eastern horizon, around that time to a little bit earlier, between like 5.30, 5.45 and about 6.15, by that time, the sky is going to start getting too bright and it's going to be harder to see. You'll see Jupiter and Venus, which were very, very close together on Monday morning. They're actually spreading apart. Venus is moving this way, getting closer to the sun. Jupiter is getting further away. But the moon is going to join them. You're going to have a very thin crescent moon there, too. So if you're up early tomorrow morning, take a look out to the east as long as you've got a nice clear view. And you'll see a little triangle with two very bright objects, two of the brightest plant, two, the two brightest planets in the sky and the moon the second brightest object in the sky after the sun. So you're looking at three of the four brightest objects in the sky very close together at once in the morning. So if you get a chance, if you're up that, if you really, if you're up that early on a Saturday morning, take a look and see if you can spot those two, assuming it's not pouring down rain as it did, did yesterday. So I wanted to point that out as well before I, before I forgot. Questions on anything, anything there? Oh, no, no, one second. Let me just put this up here and we'll get started then and finish up, probably finish most of chapter, most of the first chapter today. So let me put this, this is where we finished up last time. Don't forget to sign in for me. Uh, we were looking at precession. We were looking at all the different motions of the Earth. Precession was the very slow motion of the Earth's axis. So the Earth's axis is tilted. 23 and a half degrees. Remember, that's what causes the season. So instead of the Earth's axis pointing straight up and down, it's tilted a little bit. And that tilt 
is, is pointing some direction out in space. Points actually right now, the North Pole points towards Polaris, towards what we call the North Star. It won't always do that. And that's what precession is doing. Precession is not changing, as someone asked at the end, it's not really changing the tilt. It's still 23 and a half degrees, but it's changing where that's pointing in space. So that tilt is slowly spinning around with a very, very long time period. Not that we're going to notice within our lifetime directly. Polaris is always going to be the North Star for your entire life. Actually, Polaris will be closest to the North Pole in about the year 2100. So it's not even quite there yet. It's getting closer and closer. It'll pass it in around the year 2100, then it will slowly start to move away. But that's how long of a time, how long of a time it takes. Polaris will be the pole star for a good number of hundreds, hundreds of years. And then that will slowly, slowly change over time and come back in the year, what, 28,014 and the North Pole will be right back where it is right now. So it's a complete cycle, but it repeats itself. So if you could go back 26,000 years ago, then Polaris would have been the pole star. 26,000 years from now, it will be the pole star. 13,000 years from now, it won't be. Some other star, or maybe no star, will happen to be close. But the tilt itself is not changing because of precession. This tilt itself remains at 23 and a half degrees. There are some other effects that cause it to change slightly, but for our purposes here, it stays at 23 and a half degrees. All right, so we were looking at that motion, and that has an effect on the year. That causes the year to change. So we had, we'd mentioned the tropical year before a little bit. That's what we measure. That's the year, that's our standard year that we use. But there is another year. There is actually the sidereal year. The sidereal year is how long it takes the Earth to orbit around the sun relative to the stars. That's a little bit different than the tropical year. The tropical year is the sun and the seasons. How long does it take the sun to get back? But that changes because that precession, even though it takes 26,000 years, there's some small amount that, it's the, that the Earth's axis has changed and has changed the star's positions in that, very, in that year. It's changed a little bit, not a whole lot, but just as there were two days because the Earth was moving around the sun and it took a little bit longer for the sun to get back into the same position than it did the stars, the same thing happens with the years. It takes a little bit, little bit different time for the Earth to get back relative to the stars than it is relative to the seasons and the sun. So what that means is that the constellations are slowly changing and that right now, if you go out in January when it's nice and cold, that's the best time to see Orion in the evening, you know, blazing bright in the night winter sky. 13,000 years from now, when we're halfway through that precession cycle, the seasons won't change because that's how we base our calendar. July and August are going to be the summer seasons. But now Orion will be out in July and August. That slow change has gone. It takes it 13,000 years, but then it'll be, Orion will be out in July and August. And you'll see that constellation then, and you'll see other constellations in January instead. 13,000 years after that, we'll be back where we started. Again, it's a cyclical process, so it'll come right back again 26,000 years, years later. So the constellations are slowly, slowly changing because of this. Now, it's not the constellation patterns changing. That's just when they're, when they're visible. So if you could come back in 
6,500 years. Well, Orion won't be visible. It'll be, it'll be visible, you know, halfway between that. So it'll it'll be a very slow change. It's not like Orion will be winter, 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 all of a sudden, one year, now it's in the summer. It's a very slow progression that will occur over those 13,000 years. Now I've mentioned all sorts of motions of the Earth. And what I wanted to put in here is uh, something to give you some idea of how fast we're actually moving. I did a couple calculations here. So this next slide gives you a whole bunch of different, uh, some of the different motions we've talked about. I left out precession because that's a very slow one. I was trying to look at the kind of fast motions that we have. Just to try to give you an idea of how fast we're really moving right now, sitting still here in the classroom. So just some numbers. I'm not going to test you on it. You don't have to memorize any of these numbers. So I'm not asking, I just want to give you sort of the impact of what we're, what we're moving. So. First is the rotation of the Earth. That's just the Earth spinning. At the equator, that's about 1,000 miles an hour. It's a little bit less up here, but about 1,000 miles an hour the Earth is spinning. Take how fast it spins one day, take what the circumference is, it's about how fast it's spinning. To give you an idea, I gave you, I did Harrisburg. If you're driving from Harrisburg to Orlando, it's a little less than 1,000 miles. And you could do that in 57 minutes. Try to give you a time frame. Uh, I spent two weeks down in Orlando with my kids this summer, so that was just a convenient thing for me to pick out since we had just done, done that drive, which took us, what, about 13 or four, 14 or 15 hours, I think? Something like that. I just got back from Orlando be, Did you? before the class started. Okay. An hour and 50 minutes to get back on the plane. Yeah. So this is that's faster, than the, faster than the plane. Because that's going to take you a little less than an hour here. Yours took you an hour, a little hour and, four, hour and 50 minutes? Yeah. Yeah. So even faster than a plane. And that's the slowest of the motions I'm giving you. So that's the slowest one. But that's how fast your, the rotation is. Again, that's a little bit off because that's for the equator. If we're a little further north, it's a little bit less. But we're still moving at you know, many hundreds of miles an hour, you know, eight, 900 miles an hour of the Earth twirling around. Now the other thing the Earth is doing is it's revolving around the sun. It goes around the sun once every year. It takes a long time, uh, but it's a great distance. So it's actually moving pretty fast, 66,000 miles per hour. So we're moving 66,000 miles an hour right now. Think about that with the trip. Now you can get down to Orlando in less than a minute, 52 seconds. So very, very fast for moving. Um, we actually have objects, we have launched objects that are now going faster than that. There are a couple of the spacecraft that actually exceed that speed uh, that are going in the hundreds of thousands of miles per hour. You know, nothing that any astronaut has ever traveled on. These are some of the uh, probes that have gone to the outer solar system. Um, so we launch them and get them going up to very, very high speed. So actually can go even, even faster than this. But that's how fast we're actually moving right now, just revolving around the sun. We're moving at 66,000 miles per hour. Now while we're doing that, a couple motions I didn't talk about that we'll come back to later in the class, but I wanted to put on here, is that while that's going on, the sun is revolving around the galaxy. So it takes it hundreds of millions of years to make one revolution around the galaxy, but it's also a tremendous distance, so it's moving extremely quickly. 483,000 miles an hour. We're on the Earth, we're orbiting the sun, doing all that. So now you're moving at almost 500,000 miles an hour. And now you can get down to Orlando in about seven seconds. Wouldn't that be, now that's, that's what my, 
My daughter wants something like that after, you know, after the long, after the long drive. They want something. Well, she keeps saying, you need, someone needs to invent a teleporter. I said, go ahead. <laughs> it would be nice when you got that nice long drive. Now you get there in, in a few seconds. So that's just the sun orbiting around the Milky Way. The last one I want to give is actually the Milky Way galaxy is moving throughout through space. And that's even faster. So that's actually about 1.3 million miles per hour. So now you can get down there in about three seconds, a little less than half that time, about three seconds to Orlando in that case, if we had some way to actually travel 1.3 million miles per hour. And now that I've given you how fast you're actually moving right now, these are incredibly slow speeds compared to some of the things we'll talk about. Um, in terms of light, this is about less than half of a percent of the speed of light. So light travels many, many times faster than that, a couple hundred times faster than that, hundreds of times faster than that. So light speed, you're only talking a tiny fraction of a second to get down, down to Orlando. But that's just how fast you know, you're moving right now over a million miles per hour, spinning around. Getting dizzy yet? Spinning around, all, all the, and all those motions, well, the rotation of the Earth, it's all a spinning motion. So is the revolution, so is the orbiting of the galaxy. So you're spinning around pretty darn fast, too. So I want to just give you some ideas. Again, I'm not going to test you on any of these numbers, so I'm not going to, you don't have to remember exactly what they were. I just wanted you to have the idea of how fast you're actually moving while we're sitting still here right now. Okay? All right, so. Now we, talk, we talked about the motion of the Earth and gave you that. Let's look at the motion of the Moon. Um, the Moon has a couple of uh, rotational periods as well. It has what we call its synodic, a synodic period. And for the Moon, that's the synodic month, which is 29 and a half days. What is a synodic month? That is how long it takes the, Earth, the moon to orbit once relative to the sun. This is what we see. The synodic month is the cycle of phases. So when we go out and look at the sun, look at the sun, look at the moon, you might see a full moon, might see a big full moon like we saw a couple weeks ago. We're coming up towards a thin crescent now in the morning sky. Uh, next week will be to a thin crescent in the evening sky. Uh, sometimes you see the moon fully illuminated, just a little bit of it, maybe half, maybe more than half. So we see a complete cycle of phases, but it goes through that in a pattern. And if you start with the full moon and go around and it fades down and goes back and disappears completely and then comes back around, that takes 29 and a half days. That's how long it takes the moon to orbit once relative to the sun, 29 and a half days. <coughs> what is causing the phases? The moon is always half illuminated. Half of the moon is always bright and illuminated. So that's what the little diagram is showing here. If you look at this, the sun's way off to the distance. It always illuminates half the sun. But as the moon moves around the Earth, sometimes it's over here. And that fully illuminated side is facing the Earth. That's what we see as a full moon. Sometimes it's over here. Half the moon's still illuminated, but that half that's illuminated is now facing away from the Earth. So we can't see. We don't see it. And that's what we call a new moon. Not visible. That's what we're coming up to here in another, another day or two. We'll come up towards a new moon. If you try looking for the moon, you're just not going to see one. It's still there. It's just two things. It's in the same direction as the sun in the sky. 
So you couldn't see it even if it were there. It's so bright, would be, the sun would be so bright. And the illuminated portion, the part that's actually being lit up by the sun, is facing away from us. So we can't see it. As you go through the cycles, you go from a new moon, you'll go to a crescent phase, just a part of the thin crescent of the moon visible. We'll go through a quarter phase. And then what we call a gibbous phase, G-I-B-B-O-U-S, because you probably can't read that on the little tiny print up here. A gibbous phase to a full phase, and then you go backwards through the same, same cycle. It really just depends on how much of that illuminated part we can see from the Earth at any given time. And that depends on where the moon is relative to the sun. So the moon will go through that complete cycle of phases, but remember that while, that, while the moon is orbiting around the Earth, the Earth and the moon together are orbiting around the sun. So there's actually going to be two orbital periods. We have a synodic month. We'll also have a sidereal month. Uh, I think it's point .3. To a little over 27 days. That's how long it really takes the moon to orbit around the Earth once relative to the stars. So if you ignore all the other motions that are going on and just sit there from above and watch the moon go on to the Earth, around the Earth relative to the very distant stars, it would take a little bit less. So we saw this with the day. Day took a little bit longer to get around relative to the sun. The solar day was 24 hours long. The sidereal day was 23 hours and 56 minutes because of that motion. Same thing happens here with the months. A little bit longer, although in this case because the moon orbits slowly around the Earth, it's actually a bigger difference. It's actually a two-day difference instead of just a couple minutes as it was with the days. So we have a synodic month. That's the cycle of phases. Sidereal month is relative to the stars. That's really like a true orbital period. How long does it really take the moon to orbit around the Earth once? To go from one spot and get back to that exact same spot again takes it a little bit less. Um, if you aren't familiar, that is where our word for month comes from, is from moon. A, a moon, a one moon cycle, a cycle of phases is about 30 days long and that's why our months are about 30 days long. It originally comes from uh, astronomically the moon. Alright, and that's one of the reasons that none of these things kind of fit together, why there's you know, not an even number of days in a year or days in a month or months in a year, nothing ever matches up exactly right, because they're not all related to each other. Now, they weren't designed to be anything, it just happens to be. Here's how long the moon takes to orbit us, here's how long the earth takes to spin once, here's how long the earth takes to go around the sun they don't all match up. You're not going to have them come out exactly a certain number of days. You're not going to have exactly 30 days. It's going to be 29 point something or other. So that's why everything is a little bit off and that's why we actually have, you know, some days a little, some months a little bit longer than this and to balance out and they're all a little, and then the years don't quite match out and we have a leap year every four years just because none of them are going to be exactly even numbers. So. We had two different days, two different months, two different years. All sorts of fun here. But the moon does a lot of does some other things, and we'll talk about the moon again briefly when we come back to our section on uh, the planets. But the moon does some interesting things here I want to talk about, which are eclipses. 
Now when I showed you the phases there, I showed you an image very similar to this, which I said was the new moon, full moon. Right? Sun was over here, there's the Earth, there's half the moon illuminated, and we can see that. Well, the Earth casts a shadow, like any other object, in bright light. It casts a shadow out into space. If the moon is right here behind the Earth, it goes into the Earth's shadow and disappears. And that's what we call an eclipse. That's a lunar eclipse. We'll look at solar eclipses here in just a minute. But the, a lunar eclipse occurs when the Earth comes between the moon and the sun. And if it's directly in between them, that's the other thing we forget. This make it look, makes it look like you're getting an eclipse every single time. Well, actually, the solar system's three-dimensional. So this orbit really isn't drawn into the screen here. It should be tilted a little bit. So sometimes the moon is up above the Earth's shadow. That's most of the time we never get an eclipse. Sometimes it's below, behind here, and we never get an eclipse. Only when it lines up perfectly do we get an eclipse, and that's why they're relatively rare. Uh, we do have a lunar eclipse coming up this semester in about a month and a half, October the 8th. Uh, there will be a lunar eclipse. Not a great one where you get to see the whole thing, but the moon will actually, uh, what does it say? It starts about 5.15 in the morning. So starts very late, and we're catching the very end of it. And then the moon will be setting while it's still eclipsed. So there is that one. I will remind you closer to that, but October 8th, there will be a lunar eclipse where if you're up early, you'll be able to see the eclipse begin. You'll see the moon move into the Earth's shadow and slowly disappear. And then you'll see it reach into the shadow as it's getting close to being setting, if you have a nice clear view of the west as it sets. The moon doesn't, I said it disappeared, it doesn't completely disappear. As it goes into that shadow, the shadow of the Earth isn't like the shadow of some other objects where it's completely dark. There's actually light in the Earth's shadow. And that's because the Earth has something that a big solid object doesn't have, and it has around it here a thin atmosphere. And that atmosphere serves to bend light that comes around very close to the Earth, actually gets scattered into this shadow. The red light gets scattered in there very, very well. So actually, when you look at this eclipse moon, if we get a nice clear day on October the 8th, we were all ready last semester for the eclipse, and of course it rained us out completely. So keep our fingers crossed this time that there will be, you'll get to see a nice blood red moon. It'll be a nice yellowish moon when it starts and you'll see parts of it disappear as it moves into the shadow and that'll progress. And then once it gets into the shadow, it'll reappear and it'll be kind of a very deep red as is shown here. So look at that very deep red. That's the light from the sun still making it through that makes it into the Earth's shadow to illuminate it. So hopefully we get a chance to see that this this semester. Um, there are two types of lunar eclipses. The first kind is a total eclipse. And that means the moon is completely in the Earth's shadow. So the moon go in entirety goes into the Earth's shadow. That's actually pretty common with the lunar eclipse. The other option is that it's a partial eclipse which might mean that if this is the Earth's shadow out in space, that the moon sometimes will come through like this 
and only part of it will actually pass into the Earth's shadow. So part of it will be blocked off, but the rest of the moon will still be bright. Still a cool eclipse to see, but you can either get a total eclipse if it goes right through the middle, or you can get a partial eclipse if it doesn't quite, if it's just clipping part of the Earth's shadow. So you can see those, those two for lunar eclipses. It's either total or it's partial. Those are the only two options you get for a lunar eclipse. We're going to look at solar eclipses in just a minute, and they're a little bit different. We actually can get another type of, another type of eclipse. So good chance here, hopefully, this semester to be able to see a nice lunar eclipse. For a solar eclipse, in this case, the moon is between the Earth and the Sun. So the moon has now become in, become between the Earth and the Sun, as shown in the diagram up here. There's the Earth, there's the Sun. Lunar eclipse, the moon is over here. Solar eclipse, the moon is over here. The moon, half illuminated side of the moon, is now facing away, facing the Sun. The, the, un, the unilluminated side is facing us. But if everything lines up just right, then the moon's shadow can fall on the Earth. Now, you notice one difference here, and you might, that the moon's shadow is a lot smaller than the Earth's shadow was. The Earth's shadow engulfed the entire moon because the Earth is about four times bigger than the moon. So, four times bigger casts a much bigger shadow. So, the Earth's shadow completely engulfs the moon. The moon's shadow doesn't. It'll, part of it will hit, the, will hit the Earth, but it won't hit the entire Earth's surface. So you can be on the Earth when a solar eclipse is occurring, and if you're not in the right location, you still don't get to see it. So here's one that occurs, and it looks like that's going through, what, Central America there someplace. So if you're up here in you know, the northern U.S. or into Canada, you don't see an eclipse at all. Still going on. Just from your perspective, the shadow never reaches you. That shadow might only be, the actual central dark shadow here, might only be, you know, miles wide. So you have to be in that exact location to really be able to see a total solar eclipse where the moon completely blocks out the sun. If you're a little further out in this lighter area, you'll get a partial solar eclipse. Part of the sun will get blocked out. So you see that here? where just part of the sun might be blocked out, but it won't eventually block out the whole thing. Here, completely blocks out the sun. You can see some of the solar atmosphere around it, but the actual sun itself, what you're used to seeing, is completely blocked out. So you can get a total or a partial for a solar eclipse, just like you do with a lunar. And you can also get one other kind of eclipse that you cannot get with a lunar eclipse. So solar eclipses, You get a total eclipse, those are the rarest, because you have to be in exactly the right spot. Partial, not quite so rare. These occur a couple times a year. So do these, but a partial eclipse, you can see it's visible over a much bigger area of the Earth's surface. Or you can get what we call an annular eclipse. Annular eclipse occurs because the moon isn't always at the same distance from the Earth. The moon orbits around the Earth. Sometimes it's a little closer, sometimes it's a little bit further away. Right? We've all heard about that probably because you hear about the supermoon. Right? Last full moon was a big supermoon. And that's just because the full moon happened to occur when the moon was closest to the Earth, so the moon looked a little bit bigger. 
Did you go look at it? Did it look a lot bigger? Eh, probably not really, unless you have something to compare. Now, if you compare the two, you can actually see. If you take pictures of them and put them side by side, you can see there's a big difference in the size of the moon. It's bright, and it will be brighter too. And you can, if you're really watching, you might be able to notice it. But it's not going to, just a quick glance isn't really going to tell you anything that, hey, it's this much bigger. But if you put pictures of them side by side, you know, you can get images like, you know, one moon is this big and the other moon is, you know, that big. It's a big difference, but you just don't have any perspective to compare it to. But that happens, that means that sometimes the moon is bigger in size on the sky, sometimes it's smaller. When the eclipse occurs when it's small, when it's further away from the Earth, it can't quite cover up the sun. So you might have everything lined up perfectly. There's the sun and the moon. They're lined up perfectly. The moon is exactly in front of the sun, but it's too small. It doesn't, and you have this ring, annulus, around the moon left, left there. So you can sometimes get an annular eclipse. And now that means is that the moon was a little bit too far away in order to completely block out the sun. Now if you get an eclipse at supermoon time, then you're easily going to block it out. Well, supermoon for when it's closest, that would be a new moon, but the same effect. When it's, close, when it's closest to the Earth, you're easily going to get it blocked out. That's when you get some of the best eclipses. Yes, ma'am? How often do annular eclipses happen? Uh, quite often. Uh, year, year, sometimes they'll occur once in a year. Some, you'll get a solar eclipse at least twice a year. So you will get two solar eclipses somewhere on the Earth every year. Not here in Harrisburg. We got, we got one coming up in a couple of years, so we're getting close now. Um, annular eclipses occur. A good chunk of the solar eclipses will be, will be annual. I mean, one in three, one in four, I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but it's, they're not extremely rare where you never see them. But they're a little less common than like partial eclipses are the most common that you'll see. And that's what we have coming up. We actually, we actually have a partial eclipse coming up this year too. That's, I'm, I'm going to say it's visible from Harrisburg, but it's almost not worth looking for because it's going to be so small. When was it? It was October 23rd, about two weeks after the lunar eclipse. Lunar eclipse will be nice to see here. Two weeks later, there's going to be a solar eclipse. But it's starting like 10 minutes before sunset. So by the time you get there, you're going to have this little tiny chunk taken out of the sun, and you better have a perfectly clear view of the western horizon. If you've got a building or a tree or a little hill or an ant mound or something, it's going to be blocking, blocking out and making it very hard to see. So I mentioned that one. If you happen to be taking a trip further west, you'll get a much better view of it. But we're just on the very tail end where we would catch it for a couple minutes if you get a nice clear view of the western horizon as the sun is setting. So don't, don't hold your breath for that one. Don't worry if it rains that day because you're not going to be missing a whole lot. Hopefully the one on the 8th will be a little bit better. We get to see a lunar eclipse. All right, so let's review those. Let me put those up here. Just kind of put the numbers, uh, the descriptions up again. We have three different solar eclipses. You can have a partial one if only part of the sun is blocked. You can have a total when it's all blocked completely. That's what's being pictured in the image there. And you can have an annular eclipse when the moon is too far away from the Earth to be able to get a total eclipse. So you can have a total, partial, or an annular eclipse for the sun. Now this is an image of a total eclipse. We're still seeing part of the sun around it. Not what we call the surface of the sun that we normally see, but this is the atmosphere of the sun called the corona. Out around the edge of the sun, 
it's always there. It's relatively bright, but its brightness is nothing compared to the surface of the sun. So when the surface of the sun is visible, this is completely washed out. Even though it's out there, you know, if it's nice and clear right now and you go out and look, and you could see that, you know, corona's there, but you're not going to see it because the rest of the sun washes it out completely. It can only be seen during a total eclipse, either a natural one like these or an artificial one that astronomers can make with telescopes to be able to, to see. So three different types of solar eclipses, really two different types of lunar eclipses. Now why don't we get them every month? I, I alluded to this before, but here's a little diagram to try to explain it a little better. Why don't we get them? Because when we draw things, when we put images in the book, we try, we, we're drawing things on a piece of paper. So we're trying to show things in two dimensions. Well, our solar system and our Earth and Moon are not all in two dimensions. I can't draw those orbits perfectly on the board. And that's because they're tilted a little bit. So the Earth and the Sun, you can imagine that. You could draw that nicely on a piece of paper because that will stay the same. That will not change. You have the Earth and the Sun and that orbits on a nice little piece of paper here. But if I try to draw the Moon's orbit on the same piece of paper, I can't. I need another piece that's tilted by about 5 degrees. Not a lot, but 5 degrees is enough so that most of the time when a new moon occurs, it's either below or above the sun. If you recall, the sun was only half a degree in size. So if it's tilted by 5 degrees, you know, sun's that big and you're tilting things by this much, you can be way easily, you don't have to be very far off to be up above or below it. So you don't get an eclipse, no solar eclipse if that moon's shadow doesn't touch the Earth. No lunar eclipse if the full moon doesn't pass into the Earth's shadow. If it goes below it here or above it here, we don't get an eclipse. It's only at certain times of year when everything is lined up perfectly that we get the eclipses. That's why I mentioned those two eclipses coming up to you, October 8th, October 23rd. So very, very close to one of these points in the Earth-Moon orbit where everything is lined up perfectly. So that's our chance to actually get to see a couple of eclipses this year. Again, they do occur every year. There are always lunar eclipses. There's always solar eclipses. They're just not always necessarily visible for us here. The next good solar eclipse will be in 2017. So you got a couple years to wait. It will be nicely visible, much better south of here. It's not going to be a total solar eclipse. There isn't one for Harrisburg for as far ahead as I can look at least. So. Got to wait for a while there, but there is going to be a nice one in August of 2017. We'll probably be like 50 or 60 percent covered. It goes down through like Atlanta and the Carolinas, and then St. Louis, and then up to Washington State. So it kind of treks across the across the entire United States. So you'll be able to see the eclipse here, at least a partial eclipse here in a couple years, but not a total one uh, coming up in in the near future. But that is why they do not occur. It's all because of that, of that tilt. So here are some of those eclipses. I've mentioned some of them to you. Here's that one in 2017, August 21st. Starts out here at Washington, maybe a little further south into Oregon. Goes right down through the middle of the U.S. and then out into the Atlantic. So the total, this is, this is red track is where it would be total. That's where you'd see a total eclipse. Around that, so even up to, you know, up into Canada here, down into Mexico, you'll get a big stretch around there where you'll get to see the partial eclipse. Anybody down in South America is not going to see that eclipse any more than we're going to see this eclipse here. 
that's occurring down in Argentina and Chile, we're not going to see that up here at all, not even as a partial. The other good one that comes up is in April of 2024. So got about well, less, than ten, less than 10 years to wait now. Uh, that one goes up through Mexico and then through the eastern part of the U.S. Again, it doesn't hit us. It goes right through like uh, New York. It goes right through Buffalo area, I believe. I think it hits up through Buffalo, through Cleveland, and up to Buffalo, and then out into Canada and out to the Atlantic. We're just going to get about 90% covered there. So even closer if you're in Harrisburg, but if you're around this area in 2024 or around someplace in the eastern U.S., there's a lot of uh, places where you got a chance to travel to actually get to see a total solar eclipse. Um, the other ones, these are not all of the eclipses that occur in, that, in these 20 years. These are just some of, one, some of the major ones. There's actually at least a solar eclipse to two every, every year. We'll at least see some. These are just some of the major nice ones that you'll be able to see. And why do we not see a lot of them here on land? Well, look where a lot of them occur. They're all in the oceans. So if you go read Sky and Telescope, you'll see when there's a big eclipse coming up that there's you know a cruise ship that's going to take you out to the ocean and take you to the eclipse path and you can actually go on an eclipse cruise to see the eclipse. Nice thing there is you got a chance to move. If it looks like it's going to be bad weather in one area, you can try to plan to get to a nicer area. Um, a little easier to do that there than it is here on, here on Earth. I mean on land, I should say. Alright, so a little bit on eclipses there. The other thing I wanted to talk about a little bit was measuring distances. Uh, distance measurements, we're, again, we're going to come back to this over and over throughout the semester. The first method we're going to talk about is related to what we call triangulation. We don't have to go through any calculations for this. I just want you to see how it's done. And what is done with triangulation here on Earth is that you measure two spots. You measure someplace here. You're trying to figure out how far this tree is across the river. So you sight it here. You sight it again from another distance away. You can measure this angle. You can measure the baseline as to how far apart these two are. Right? You can paste that off. You can get a measuring tape and you can paste it off and find out how far apart these are. You know, 20 meters, 30 meters, 40 meters, how far across are they? And then you can solve uh, the right triangle. Right? You, know, you know this side, you know the angle. You can actually find the other side, you can actually find this distance. There's an equation to find the distance. Again, we don't need to do that. Don't, not going not to do that as a calculation, although we'll do something quite similar when we do our altitude measurements at the end of the term. But the idea is that if you know this baseline and you can measure this one angle and you have a nice right triangle here, you can easily figure out how far something is away. You don't have to measure across the, to the tree. You can get a direct measurement from this from from one side. So we can figure out how far away that tree is. Well, we can use something very similar to this in space. If we observe objects from two different positions, they seem to change. Right? I do that all the time. I do that the whole class because I walk back and forth up here. And when I'm looking here, someone in the front of the room is against that, par that person in the back, back of the room. But when I walk over to this side, all of a sudden, they've moved. Now they're pointing against this person. So that's what we call parallax. It's just a shift when your position changes. That's what's happening here. This observer observes the tree. This observer observes that tree in a slightly different position and allows us to measure the distance. Well, parallax is the same kind of thing. And here's an example done for 
the Earth. We need something a little bit bigger to be able to measure this because the distances are so far. But if you can imagine a telescope on one side of the Earth and a telescope on the other side of the Earth, looking at some object relative to very distant stars, that from this position, this person sees this object against this set of stars over on this side. This person sees it against this set of stars. If you measure that difference, that is what is called the parallax. And we can measure that shift by how much that shift occurred tells us the distance. Now it turns out that that doesn't work except for the very closest objects within our solar system. You can do that maybe with the moon. That's about it. If you want to measure distances to stars, it won't work. The Earth isn't big enough. We need a bigger Earth. Well, we can't really expand the Earth, but the Earth is moving around the Sun. So we can get it that way. We can allow the Earth to move and we can observe these stars right now from one spot on the Earth. We can wait six months. What's the Earth done in six months? Right? There's the Sun here at the center. There's the Earth once. Six months later, there's the Earth again. Now there it is. It's moved quite a distance. So we could observe it from here and observe it from here. That gives us a real big baseline to measure these angles. And this is actually what allows us to measure the distance to some of the nearest stars, the few hundred nearest stars. A few hundred thousand nearest stars. As technology gets more and more accurate, we're able to measure distances better and better. So that's our first method of measuring distances that we have. It's the first one that we first one that we've come up we come up with. We're going to look at a lot more because this only works for the stars very close to us. Anything further away, that angle is much too small to be able to be accurately measured. It's very very tiny. Should give you a number here. That angle for the nearest star, that parallax angle, you don't have to remember it, but was about uh, Spell right. There we go. About three quarters of one arc second. Remember that from last time, right? Take a degree, divide it into 60 pieces, that's arc minutes. Take one of those and divide it into 60 pieces, that's arc seconds. Well, not quite one of those 3,600 pieces of a degree is the largest parallax that we can measure. That's about 1,800th the diameter of the full moon. So you go out and look at the full moon. Imagine that full moon and cut it up into 1,800 pieces. You're measuring one of those 1,800 to get the nearest parallax to the star. Many of them are much, much further away than that. So very difficult to get, to get distances. But we'll find a number of methods that we do, that we do use. Question, yes, sir? Uh, with precession, when it comes back around to this same point mm -hmm. 6,000 years later, if that, those stars that you're using to measure the distance are gone, wouldn't that mess up your problem of measuring the distance? Um, precession, not for pre precession, it wouldn't matter because you're, you're not using that to measure the distances. No, I'm just saying mm -hmm. using time, it over time. When we got back to this same point, mm -hmm. you measure the same point that you're doing currently to get those. You're using the stars. Right. Well, 26,000 years later, those stars might not be there. So That's possible, but, but honestly, even 26,000 years isn't much for astronomically speaking. I mean, even the stars that live the shortest lives live, live a couple million years. So, 
Yes, you could lose a few stars, but if you pick a bunch of them, you know, you might, one of your stars, something might happen. But the odds of it happening, for most of this, is measured within a year. Nothing much is going to happen. Nothing much is going to happen. But yeah, you could. You wouldn't want to pick one star because if that one star does happen to supernova, yeah, you'd be. Yeah, you'd use more than that. All right, question? All righty. Well, last section here I want to get started on, and we'll see how close we get through. Got a couple minutes here. Um, is really the last section of the chapter is on science and the scientific method. And it gives some idea of what a scientific theory is supposed to be. And the whole idea is that you want the best scientific theory that fits your observations. You want it to fit your observations as well as it can, but you also want it to be simple. You can make nice comp complicated ones, but you want the simplest thing that fits the observations is most likely to be right. And that's what uh, astronomers and other scientists tend to use. But these are some criteria for something to be a scientific theory. Uh, something to be a scientific theory has to be testable, has to be something that we can test. So. A good scientific theory, you know, the moon is made out of green cheese. Is it, we know it's wrong, but is it a good science, can I test it? Yeah, I could take a rocket to the moon, get a piece, get a piece of the moon and bite on it and find out that my teeth just shattered with the moon rock, right? You could test it. There is a way to go and test it. So it's a good scientific theory. It might quickly be proven wrong, but at least it's a reasonable scientific theory. What would not be a good scientific theory would be, you know, Einstein is the greatest scientist in history. Is it? Or is there an argument, you know, well, someone says Newton or someone says, you know, uh, Hawking or whoever. I mean, there's, there's a big variety. You know, you could pick all sorts of people and it would be more of, more of a debate on it. There's nothing that you could actually test. How are you going to test who the greatest scientist was? It's not something that you can physically test. So you have to be able to test it. You have to continually test it has to be continually tested. So you don't stop testing a theory. It proves right once or twice. Okay, we're done and we go on to the next thing. No, people are constantly testing. Einstein's theories of relativity been around for 100 years now. They're still testing and pushing them to the limits. They're holding up. When are they going to break down? I'll be, I can say with pretty much certainty, eventually they will. Eventually we'll find something that supersedes Einstein's. But right now, there are best theories that we have for motion and gravity. So we continually test them. They've held up for 100 years. That doesn't mean much. It was for thousands and thousands and more years that we thought that the Earth was the center of the universe. You know, for a long time, that was considered you know, fact. So we continually test things. They should be simple and elegant. You know, nice, nice, very easy to understand theories. You can prove a scientific theory wrong. You can never prove it right. Not with 100% certainty. You can verify it. You, know, you can make an experiment that verifies it. But is there something else? Is there some other place? You know, general relativity works all sorts of things. But it breaks down if you try to look inside a black hole. Einstein's equations fall apart if you get too close to the center of the black hole. They don't work down there. So what does? Well, some bigger theory is going to have to come up to explain those. So we can never prove right with 100%. We're still, we still use theories that are wrong. I'll talk to you about Newton's theory of gravity. It's wrong. It's superseded by Einstein's, but it works for almost everything we'll use. So why go into the complexity of Einstein as much when we can do it with a much simpler way? 
So you can prove a theory wrong, but you're never going to prove it right. All you need is one example to prove it wrong. You've got to test every single case and every single possibility to prove something right, which isn't possible. And the last thing I want to show up here, I'm just going to put up just kind of basic of the scientific method. Really just shows what's going on. I'm going a little bit over, but you guys are stuck with me for another hour anyway. So I'll give you a break after this while we get set up for lab. And that way we'll actually be pretty much done with chapter zero. This is my last slide. So, Observation. You always start off with some kind of observation. What do you see? You look at something out in the sky, you watch how a planet moves, and you see here is its position over time. How do we explain that? Well, might be it moves around the Earth. Right? Looks like it is, maybe we explain it by moving around the Earth. We predict an orbit for it, and that leads us to make predictions. Okay, so we may come up with a theory now that says, okay, this planet is orbiting around the Earth, and here's its orbit. That means I can tell you where it's going to be two weeks from Tuesday. Come back two weeks from Tuesday, look at the planet, is it exactly where I predicted it to be? If it is, great, keep going, make more predictions, see if you find something where it's wrong. Maybe it'll be right in two weeks, but it'll be wrong three years later. If it's not consistent, then you go back and review your theory again. Maybe you've got to modify your theory. Well, maybe the orbit has to be a little bit changed in order to get it to fit. And you keep making and refining your theory. We'll look at this a little bit more in the next chapter when we look at the motions of the planets and how we began to understand that the Earth was not at the center of the, uni of the universe. So that's essentially just you know thumbnail of the scientific method. You make some observation. You see something that's happening. You come up with a theory to explain it. You're not done there. That's just the start. The theory is the start. That theory should, has to make new predictions. Where is that planet going to be three weeks from now? And we observe. Does it work or not? Either way, we go back and refine the theory. Either we keep making more observations and continue to refine the theory. So I'm going to finish up there. There are two more slides on here that are a review. I'm going to go ahead and just leave them there. There doesn't mean they're not important. They're a good review of what was covered in this. But instead of me repeating everything else since we've finished pretty well here, I'm just going to leave them for you to take a look at. But they're pretty much just, you can print these out on D2L if you like. Uh, but it really just kind of summarizes a lot of the high points of the lecture material we've covered for this chapter. And there's just two pages of these. So what I was going to do is I usually give you a break in between here. If you want to stretch, get up and stretch. And then I'll get the, get the lab ready. We're going to do one of the labs with the uh, Starry Night program here in a couple of minutes. So questions? Already.